0: The scripture reading is Matthew 12:33 through 37. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of bifers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, keep them open right there to Matthew chapter 12. Thank you, Ruth, for reading that. Uh, believe in abluence on 630, somewhere around there. It's close. That should get you in the vicinity if it's not right. We want you to be able to follow along uh, with what we're talking about this morning and realize that, that really my opinion is irrelevant. Uh, what we want to present to you this morning is the Word of God, and we want it to speak. And so uh, make sure you turn there and um, just join me if you would for, for a word of prayer. God, we thank you uh, for your presence here this morning. We thank you for what we've already been able to celebrate uh, and thank you for what's still to come uh, on this full day here at FBN. And, uh, and Lord, we just, we just pray right now that your spirit would, would come and really just take over this room. God, would you, uh, would you bring energy? Would you bring conviction? Would you bring uh, just a, a sense of awe in your presence? Would you, would you help us just to hang on your word this morning and learn from it? And then make us obedient to it, God, to the glory of, of your name. And we need you to do this because we can't do it ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever said something that you instantaneously regretted? I know, I know there's someone I know well uh, that has just probably the, the, the most prime example of this in a story in their life, and, and they're hugely embarrassed by it, so I'm going to tell you the story without telling you who it is, because I'm going to protect their identity this morning. But this person that I know well ran into uh, someone they used to work with at, at Walmart in Greencastle. And I said to them, oh, I didn't know that you were expecting. To which the lady said back, I'm not. Now, what do you, what do, you do in that moment? Do you, do you find a hole to crawl in? Do you, do you, like, and I know what you're thinking. I want to know who said this, right? Listen, I told you I'm not going to tell you. I would never throw my mom under the bus like that, okay? So you're not going to get that out of me. But we've all been there, right? Well, I haven't been there. I've never asked someone if they were pregnant when they weren't. But we've all said things that we regret. We've all said things we're embarrassed about. If you, if you want some entertainment this afternoon, just, just go on YouTube and look up preachers who accidentally cussed while they were preaching. Um, there's one guy in particular who tried to say that Abraham pitched his tents. You, you can figure out where he went from there, right? And then he has like a three-minute freak out after, right? He just doesn't handle it well. And, and I love watching and laughing, but it also it's my nightmare because I know there's one day, right? There's one day I'm just going to say something I didn't mean to say, and it's going to be terrible, right? But like with that, terrible, that's not even a word, okay? But we all have, and I, just, I admit to do that. It's part of the sermon, right? We all have funny, horrifying... ...riddled stories, and as embarrassing as they are, right, as much as we can laugh at it, as much as we can be ashamed about it, they don't come close to the full potential of the power of our words. We all heard the old rhyme, having with that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Well, a moron wrote that, okay? <laughs> because whoever wrote that just really lacked self-awareness. Uh, because yeah, I appreciate the sentiment, but man, nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. And the Bible is clear throughout, right? That the, the words carry immense power, both for good and evil. Proverbs eighteen twenty one says this. It says that the tongue has the power of life and death and those who love it will eat of its fruit. That's the Bible. It's the word of God telling you that with your words, you could actually speak life into someone's life and you could also speak death. And then Solomon goes on to say that those who love it, right? That means those who use it a lot, who talk a lot, They will eat of the fruit that they bring with it. And so if you use it for good, then good will come back to you. And if you use it for evil, then evil will come back to you. And Listen, we talk a lot. Um, Statistics have shown that the average male, the average man speaks 10,000 words a day. That's a lot of words until you compare it to females. The average woman speaks 25,000 words a day. Now, this is actually part of the design. If you, if you know anybody in your life that's male or female, you know how this works. Women's vocal cords are actually shorter than men's, so they have to have less oxygen and less air and expend less energy to talk. It's just part of how they've been made. But regardless, right, regardless of whether you're speaking 10,000 words a day or 25,000 words a day, you're saying a lot of words. And so the statistics say that the average person, combined all together, the average person spends at least one-fifth of their life talking. And so in one year's time, your words, the words that you say in 2018 would fill 132 books that were 200 pages long each. And the most ironic part of all of this is that we live in a society in a day and age where the world just craves power. Where people are constantly looking for little advantages over one another. They're always looking for the upper hand. And yet what all of us have is this immense power that we carry around and we never or rarely consider how we use it. In the thousands and thousands of words that you said yesterday, how many of them did you stop and consider their power before you said them? Today, did you know that today you could go home and crush your kids' spirits? You go home and just inflict pain on them that they won't ever soon forget or maybe ever get over. Or you could go home and just make their day and enliven them. You go home this afternoon and just encourage your spouse and and lift them up. Or you could send them on a downward spiral that they won't soon recover from. And you could do this with almost no effort on your part. All it would take from you is the amount of energy to inhale and then to speak. That's an incredible amount of power. That's far too easy to wield, which means it demands, this thing demands our respect and our attention and our care. It's something that we should use wisely and fearfully. Let me ask you, you, do you not want to be someone who's just a consistent encouragement to those you're around? Do you not want to be somebody who just, when people around you just build them up? Do you not want to be a parent that just encourages your children and that you you want to be a spouse that that your husband or wife just flourishes because of your relationship with them and how you care for them? Don't you want to be someone that just always leaves people better than when you found them? Would you like to just stop needlessly hurting your kids or causing friction in your marriage or having more and more conflict at your work or in your life? There is a way, there is a way to yield the power of words for good. There's a way that you can use this to enrich your life and lengthen your legacy and make more vivid your impact for the kingdom of God. You can do that this morning, but the solution you must know is not in you. It's not in you, but it's made available to you. Now, the Bible is clear. Like I said, the Bible is clear about the power of our words. And it also, in response, that gives us some some pretty clear-cut guidelines on how to use them. And if you've heard any sort of sermon or talk or lesson on words, you've probably heard these verses. You've probably heard these guidelines because I want to walk you through some of these quickly because what they are is the what. This is what the Bible says about this. And as you know, in this series, we're going to try to get to the why, but we're going to get the what first. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 7 says this. It says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now God is so reverent and so awesome and so holy and so perfect and so set apart that everything about him is awesome and reverent and holy and perfect and set apart. And so this includes his name. The name of God is powerful and it needs to be honored and it needs to be revered and it needs to be respected. If you go through the book of Psalms, what you see is that God is so immense. the psalmist often just picks singular aspects about God and write whole songs praising them. Not God himself, but just, just one small aspect of him. Read Psalm 29, and it, all it talks about is how awesome the voice of the Lord is. Right? There's, there's in the psalms. There's dozens of psalms that all, they, all they're worshiping is just the name of the Lord. And then we're told in Philippians 2 that, that Jesus has been given the name above every name. Man, how far have we fallen? That our society, we just so flippantly use the name of God. And we say his name in vain and we throw it out as a curse or as a joke. It's clear, man, it's clear from the scriptures that that kind of language does not, should not be coming out of the mouth of a follower of Christ. Colossians chapter 3 says this. Paul's writing says, but now you must also rid yourselves of all things such as these. And he gives you a list. Anger, rage, malice, and then the last two are slander and filthy language from your lips. And Paul's listing for the church of Corinth, there are things that, that they should make it a goal, make it an aim, make it a prayer of their life to, to rid their lives of. And the last two that he list are slander and filthy language. You know what slander is, right? It's, it's speaking ill, speaking negatively of someone, often in untruthful ways. And Paul's saying that a follower of Christ should never fervently, never willfully, never joyfully ever speak ill of someone else, especially in untruthful ways. And then he mentions filthy language. You know what this is it's foul language, it's cuss words, it's inappropriate jokes. And I appreciate somewhat that the the, the, the millennial generation likes to challenge things. And so I've heard, I've gotten in debates with people who want to push back on this and be like, who who decides what words are bad? I'm not going to listen to society. I don't care what they say words are bad. And and so they try to use this as an excuse to justify their language. And I'm not going to get in that debate with you this morning, but I, I will tell you this. I simply do not believe that you could ever walk in the Holy Spirit and not care how others hear your words. Because the Holy Spirit never leaves you into that sort of self-centered, selfish living. Right? It matters. Remove that stuff from your life. And then you cannot give a sermon on this without James 3. James 3, we all know the passage, the chapter on the tongue. James 3 says this, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in His image. And so out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be so. So James, speaking about his book, he talks about how duplicitous things are. And here he's talking about the duplicitous nature of the tongue. He says that with it, we do great things. We've already done awesome things in this room this morning with our tongues. If you took part in the worship, you were praising and worshiping God, and you did that with your tongue. You did that with the words that came in your mouth. That is an awesome thing. We can speak words of encouragement in life. We can share the gospel with our tongues, with the words that come out. These are great things that we can do. And yet with the exact same thing, we can curse others. And ridicule others and speak filth and harm others and tear others down. And James is like, man, this just shouldn't be this way. And I'm going to tell you this morning that thus far all this is inarguable. Okay, you should not be using the name of God in vain. You just shouldn't. And I don't need a deeper explanation of that you just shouldn't be doing it. It deserves respect, honor, and reverence. You should not slander others. You should not use foul language. You should not be hypocritical with your words, speaking praises and curses. And if you want to argue about any of that, life's just too short. But listen, even though all those are absolutely true, I often find teachings on this subject to be lacking. And I'm including myself in the past in that. Because often here's how we handle this in church. Often we will quote these verses. They'll point out everything that you're doing wrong. We'll hand you the what. And then we'll sit long enough and wait until you feel sufficiently bad. And the big finish is this. Now stop it. Quit it. If you're talking like that, quit it. You say that, don't say it. Right? And and I'm going to be honest with you, that's woefully insufficient. And it's insufficient for two reasons. Number one, it doesn't even begin to get to the root of the problem. And number two, any solution that's based on you is no solution at all. Which is why I'm increasingly more and more thankful for Jesus. And I'm going to find a way to say this line in every single sermon until you can say it back to me. That First Baptist North is unapologetically and unashamedly a Jesus church. He is relentless. He alone has the wisdom to rightly identify the problem. Spoiler alert, it's much bigger than you think. And he alone has the power to bring the healing and solution. And so Ruth read to you from from Matthew 12. And in that passage, what Jesus does for us is, is, is he begins to pull back the curtain. And he shows us what our words actually reveal about who we are. And then he points us to a solution that's, that's more efficient than anything in us. And so I want you to look again at this imagery in Matthew 12, starting in verse 33. Jesus says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Do you understand what Jesus is saying there? Because if you do, it will land heavy. He starts and he, by using this image of a fruit tree, and, and he points out that if the if fruit of a tree is good or bad, then the credit or blame for that doesn't go to the fruit. Right? It's, it's impossible, Jesus says, for a good tree to produce bad fruit. And it's impossible for a bad tree to produce good fruit. So if the tree is good, then good fruit will come from it. The tree is bad, bad fruit fruit will come from it. This is undeniable. And so Jesus is pointing out what he's trying to get you to think about is that what matters is this. What matters is the health of the tree. If what's inside, what's underneath, what's unseen is good, if the roots are healthy, then they're providing life and they're providing nourishment, and then the the tree will bring forth good fruit. But if the tree is sick on the inside... And it can only produce bad fruit. Now Jesus says, take that and apply that to your words. Your heart is invisible. Your soul is unseen. And it, and it appears to us that there's no, definitely no physical way on the outside to know if your heart is healthy or whole or if it's sick and impure. And Jesus is actually saying, wait a minute, there is. There's a surefire way to know. Because the words that you say... And the thoughts that you think, they, they come up from your heart. And those are the things that actually reveal to you what the state of your heart is. We're in this little sub-series, the heartbeat series, called Spiritual Detox. And last week, we looked, on, looked at the idea of just trying to rid your life of, of negative and toxic thoughts. And, and one of our big finishing thrusts is that, that what you think about most is what you eventually become. And Jesus here is, is, is building on that. He's taking it a step further. He's saying that he's he's saying that what you think about most, what you say about most, is not just who you become, it's who you are already. And so here's here's what this means, and I'm gonna warn you, it's not fun. That when you're at your worst, when you're at the highest point of your stress, when you're angry and you're under the gun, and and the mercury in the thermometer is running at its full highest point, and when you react out of that and you snap. The thoughts that you think there, and the words that you say they are not mistakes. They're not character flaws. They're just You need a little work on them. They're who you are. That's not the entire picture of who you are, but that stuff is undeniably residing in your heart. Which is why he finishes the chapter by saying that we're all going to be held accountable for every single word we say. By our words, Jesus said, we'll be acquitted. By our words, we'll be condemned. And it's not really the words that are doing it, but it's what our words are telling us about our hearts. Which means this, your words are far more powerful than you've ever given them credit for. The Bible says they have the power of life. the power of death, that they can be a source of grace and encouragement to those around you, or you can simply destroy someone's spirit without even trying, and they're also an incredible revealer of who we are. It's one of the clearest pictures of what's actually in our hearts. And so, how do we respond to this immense power? This this seems to be something that we should take seriously, agreed? I think the first step that we need to do and it's important is that we must, number one, we must engage in honest self-reflection and the key word there is honest. We need to invite God into this process and have him search you and ask yourself this question. What do the words that I say? What are the words that I think or hear me social media uses, the words that I post say about what's in my heart? And the advice i have for you this morning is this. Lean into the pain. Don't avoid it no matter how difficult the discovery that will come back because better the pain of discovery than the pain of destruction that those words will eventually rot because that's what's at stake here if we don't get control of our words by having our hearts changed it will bring us to ruin and those around us to ruin and it will cause more pain than we could ever track you're like man you're being dramatic am I? There's two psychologists, one named Cliff Notarius from Catholic University, another named Howard Markman. He's from the University of Denver. And they did a, a, really a groundbreaking study where they took uh, hundreds of newlywed couples and they tracked them from the day of their wedding through the first 10 years of their marriage. And, and they, they meticulously tracked and recorded every single thing they could about these couples. And the whole point of the study was they wanted to find commonality between the marriages that didn't last and commonality between the marriages that did. But what they were trying to figure out was what leads to divorce. And surprisingly, early on in, in the thing, like shockingly, early on, all the couples looked remarkably similar for the first few months, even the first couple of years, except they found one small, subtle difference. The couples who remained married after 10 years, when they spoke to each other, five out of every 100 comments were negative. So 95 out of 100 were either neutral or positive. Five out of 100 were negative. The couples who divorced before the 10-year mark It wasn't a huge jump, just 10. 10 out of every 100 comments were negative. And what what Markman and Torius write is that they discovered that just that difference, just that small enough difference was enough to create a divide and over time that chasm was fed and grew and the negative toxicity took over and the marriage couldn't survive. And the difference was that small. Just five more negative comments per 100. You understand what's at stake, don't you? This doesn't just ruin marriages. John has a PhD in psychology and he writes this. He said, I wish that you could sit in my office when I counsel people and hear the terrible damage that individuals receive from not hearing affirming words, particularly affirming words from a father. And then he writes, words from a parent can powerfully set the course of a life. Man, mom and dad, you realize your words can do more good and more harm than than you've ever thought and with that much at stake, we, we must do some self-reflection, no matter how painful. I mean, We've got to ask ourselves these kind of questions. When, when, when you're critical of your spouse, what does that say about your heart? Because what's happening? In that moment, right, when, when I'm critical of my spouse, I'm focusing on her fault and something that she did that I didn't like, and, and something that I want to point out negative to her. But what Jesus is asking is, what does that say about me? What's that say about you? Why do you feel the need to control so much about them? Why are you chronically unsatisfied and discontent? Why are you an expert in their weaknesses? Have you brought any unfair expectations into this marriage that they can never satisfy? You need to ask those questions. Parents, when you discipline your kids too aggressively, too harshly, what's that revealing about your heart, not theirs? Now, I asked the Lord about this week, and the answer wasn't fun. Because what he revealed to me is most of the times when I come down too hard on my girls, what's happening is I'm acting like it was because they disobeyed. And really, I'm just angry that they weren't making my life easier. Now, it didn't make what they did right, but it certainly doesn't justify my response. Because discipline needs to be rooted in love. This one needs to be about shaping and forming them into obedient followers of Christ, not about selfish desires that I have for my life to run smoothly. Students, man, when you decide to make fun of another kid at school, or you tell your parents you hate them, or you post something awful on social media, what does that say about your heart? What does that say about how insecure or selfish or desperate you are? What is your inability to actually control your mouth and stop f- saying foul things, say about your heart, and whether or not you've truly surrendered it to Jesus. What is the fact that you really meet someone's face and then, and then you turn around or online and you're a bully to them say about your heart? What are the thoughts that you think that you never actually express verbally but they're running through there say about the condition of your heart? These aren't easy questions to ask. They're not fun discoveries to make but man are they needed. Because this notion or this notion that we are basically good people who have a few flaws, and sure, you know, I've got some blips in my character, but who doesn't? But I'm a good guy. It's that kind of thinking that cheapens the death of Jesus and keeps us from dealing with the root of the problem. He said, Jesus Christ was not sent by God to be beaten and whipped and had the flesh torn off his back and his legs and had metal spikes nailed into his body and hung on a cross naked to die in shame, all for basically good people. That's not how that went. He died because we are people whose hearts have been stained by sin. Our hearts are evil and corrupt and they need rescued. Jeremiah 17 says this, that the human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And don't you get it? There is wickedness and sin and depravity in your heart and in mine. And it's beyond anything that we can fix. It's beyond anything that we can cure. It's beyond anything that we can even fully understand. Which is why any message this morning that sounds like, well, just stop it, isn't a solution. Because the only way to fix the fruit is to heal the roots. And we must realize how big our problem is. And we must realize there is only one solution. Ezekiel 36 says this, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, forecasting the grace and salvation he's going to bring to Jesus, which brings us to point number two. After your self-reflection, no matter how painful it is, you must run to Jesus Christ. Nowhere else. Nowhere else. This is why Jesus is better than everything else out there because every other religion, every other world philosophy would tell you this. Yeah, you got some issues, right? But you can work your way out of it. Here's some steps. Here's some things to say to yourself. Here's some rituals. Here's some prayers. Here's some ceremonies. Good luck. But only Jesus says this. No, no, no. Your heart is desperately wicked. And yet despite that, you remain incredibly valuable and of worth to God because he loves you. And so I came to take your place. I came to absorb all of your punishment and to take on the cost for your sin that all of your wickedness God laid on me and in its place if you believe me he will give you my righteousness. So you're going to be forgiven. You're going to have eternal life in heaven and get this, I can make you a whole new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. And so, listen, your only hope for forgiveness, your only hope for eternal life in heaven is Jesus Christ. You must believe in him. You must trust in him. You must follow him. There's simply no other way. But on top of that, right, you need him every single moment as he brings that transformation of being a new creation about. You don't need him to forgive you, and then you go to work fixing your sin problem. That's not how it works. No, Jesus is the forgiveness. Jesus is also the cure. He is also the fix. He is the means of transformation and growth. He is the answer for everything. And that's what's missing from all those messages about this that just point out all the things you're getting wrong and then tell you to stop it. Because Exodus 20, where we're told not to take the Lord, name of the Lord in vain, is in the midst of Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments that were the center of the law, the law that we're told in the New Testament that was designed to show us our sin and show us how, short, how far short we fall of God's standard and to make us aware of that and make us run to Jesus. That's a whole different context. Colossians chapter 3, which we read earlier, it's, it's not just one verse. It needs to be read in its entirety. It's total context. Look at Colossians 3 again. Paul says, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. But then he keeps writing, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the image of its creator. Did you notice the difference? It's subtle but it's huge. Colossians chapter 3 is not a naughty list. Right? Paul's not saying anger bad, rage bad, filthy language bad, so stop it. Here's what he is saying. All that stuff's evil, and it's all a part of who you were and who you are. All of it's in your sinful nature, your old self, and Jesus has given you the power to take that off. And if you submit yourself to the process that he is doing in you, the process of being renewed in the image of your Creator, that's when that stuff gets out of your life. Because Jesus is changing your heart, because Jesus is shaping your attitude, because you're being formed to look more and more like him so that when you fall back into the ways of the old man and you will when you still struggle to control your tongue when your darkness is in your heart the answer isn't stop it the answer is to run to him the answer is to pursue him the answer is to pursue his word the answer is to pray for his cleansing and his healing grace and forgiveness because it's the only way it's going to work we must mimic the prayer of David in Psalm 51 after the prophet Nathan revealed the darkness that was in David's heart and his sin and he says to God create in me a pure heart O God Man, that's a great prayer. And then thirdly, since I know you like things to do, we all want some ownership in this, even though we must really just submit to Jesus. We can go about building a habit of using our words for good, building a habit of encouraging others. Ephesians 4.29 says this. Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. See, here we're given a positive to replace the negative. Paul says it's not just avoiding unwholesome talk, but in its place. Why don't you speak words that are helpful? Why don't you speak words that build others up? Why don't you speak words that meet them right in their moment of need? Wellspring was my, Wellspring Christian Church over in It was my first ministry post. I was young, I was inexperienced, I made a ton of mistakes, and and really in that that five years, a lot of really good times, a lot of really hard times. And I can remember one particularly really rough time, there was was a ton of disunity in the church, and I was sitting in my office one day just praying about how to address it, and I felt entirely hopeless. And God gave me a unique idea, and I thought, man, I have nothing else to lose, I'm going to try this. And so I spent an entire afternoon one day emailing everyone from the church that I had their email address. And in each email, I just tried to encourage them. I just tried to tell them all the things that I admired about them, all the things that I was thankful for about them, how much I appreciated them. Now listen, it was a smaller church. I didn't have staff. And so I did more than 50 sermons a year for five years, 250 sermons. Not a single one of those things accomplished as much good as that one afternoon did. That Just that one little discipline, turn that church around. You can turn someone's day around. You can change someone's entire week. You have the power to change someone's entire life. This power exists in you. Abraham Lincoln is, is celebrated today, isn't he? He's, he's one of the most accomplished presidents of our time. We, we have a day to commemorate him, and history celebrates him. But man, he was not celebrated in his day at all. Right? He did all sorts of things that people didn't like. He was a visionary and he saw things that, that were wrong with America and needed to get rid of. And, and so he pushed out and let out in that. But, but man, that's not popular. The, the guy out front is never popular. There's a reason he was shot. And so for Lincoln, the job was often lonely. He was probably the most heavily criticized president in history. And he had to wonder. Man, you had to wonder at times if it was just worth it. But on the night when he was shot, after he died, they began taking his personal belongings off of him and they discovered something in his wallet. And it was folded up and carried in his wallet. It was a newspaper article that was written by a single journalist. And it was, it was an article extolling the virtues of President Lincoln's fight and why the nation should get behind him and rally behind him and give him more support. And it was about the only article in the time that was written that way. And those closest to him, his advisor, said that whenever he was having a really difficult day, he would just pull out that article and read it and then get back to work. See, that's the power of words. Like Proverbs chapter 16 says that gracious words are a honeycomb. They're sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. I mean, think about that. But the words that you say today can actually be sweet to someone's soul can have healing powers. You understand? That's what Paul was saying in Ephesians 4, When he says that we should speak words that are helpful, the the, the literal Greek there means words that give grace to the hearers. You know what we're told about Jesus in Luke 4? We're told, Luke tells us that all spoke well of him and were amazed. Listen to this line. We're amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. You see, it's quite possible that you will never be more like Jesus than when you're speaking grace and life to someone else. So moving forward, I want you you to ask yourself this question. I I want you to to make this a daily question. Put a reminder on your phone. Put a reminder on your calendar. Make it a goal in your conversations. And and, then in that, make it a habit. And the question is this. Who can I encourage today? Some of the best, best bits of advice that I've ever received have just been based on this idea of encouragement. Pastor Matt Chandler says that you need to become an expert in your spouse's strengths and then don't just think about it. Tell them about it. but Share that with them and you will speak life and build them up encouragement. I, we went to the Iron Sharpens Iron Conference over there a couple years ago, the men's conference, and I went to uh, one guy's breakout session and he said this, man. He said, if you have, if you have a daughter, especially if you have kids, then, then when you put them to bed at night, here's what I want you to say to you. I said, figure out what their age is. And so right now I've, I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old and, and then two eight, eight-month-olds. But, but here's what I say to Hattie every night. I said, Hattie, if I lined up all the nine-year-olds in the world and they could tell me that I could pick anyone I want, I would choose you every time. Because it's a joy to be your dad. And he said, you tell her that every night? You're not going to have to worry about these, these boys who can shave come knocking on her door right? Because she's going to have such a high view of what men can be that she'll swat them off herself. Because that's the power of encouragement. I mean, I've never regretted telling someone that I appreciate them. I've never regretted telling someone that I've forgiven them. I've never regretted telling someone that I'm thankful for them. So why don't I do that more often? I mean, we as a church just strive to be people who have gracious words fall from our lips. And we should, should, let's, let's let this, if we could all together in this, make this our prayer this week. Psalm 141, the psalmist says this. He says, set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Keep a watch over the door of my lips. And I love how he equates it to the heart because that's all we've been talking about today. Do not let my heart be drawn to evil. Because when it is, that's when my words get bad. So I want you to imagine with me less and less and less conflict actually existing in your life. Imagine with you that your marriage flourishing in ways that it never has before because tension is just disappearing. Imagine having less anger and bitterness in the midst of your relationships. Imagine knowing, man, that that your wife is flourishing under your kids. Imagine knowing, mom and dad, that, that your kids are thriving in your home. And imagine us as a church remaining completely unified and for each other at all times. Imagine us being known as the church in Terre Haute from whom gracious words fall from our lips. Isn't that that something to strive for? It's going to take, I'm going to be honest with you, it's going to take some really painful self-reflection with the aid of God. If I've just asked him, what do my words reveal about my heart? It's going to take us surrendering those sinful hearts to him. It's going to take his love and his grace and his mercy covering us. And it will take a noted effort on our part to encourage others and to speak life and to speak grace and to speak hope. And it will not be easy, but boy, I'm telling you, it's going to be worth it. Because we hold immense power in our hands and the words that come out of our mouths. And with Christ's help, we can use that power for good. So let's pray. God, I, I, I'm so thankful, Lord, that your word doesn't just tell us the what, but the why. It just doesn't tell us what What are the kind of words that we're supposed to be saying, what are the things that we're not supposed to say. It tells us why. It paints the picture of our heart. It paints the picture of, of our selfishness. It paints the picture of our pride. Or it paints the picture of, of someone who's walking in step with you, and therefore gracious words can fall from their lips. And so Lord, I pray now for, for any in our midst who've, who've brought themselves here today and, and to this point, they've never surrendered their heart to the grace and love and mercy of Jesus Christ. That his death on the cross on their behalf right now is void because they've never believed in it. And Lord, I pray that, that right now that they were in their seat, that they would just surrender their life to him, ask you to forgive them and ask him to take over. And then, God, for the rest of us, may we, may we engage now in this time that we've built in here, just engage in some really honest self-reflection with the help of your Spirit and ask ourselves the question, what do my words say about my heart? And then just come to you and say, would you just set a guard over my lips? Help me to use it for good. And Father, we pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've been here for a few weeks, you know we've built this into our services now. We're at the end of the sermon time. We've just just built in a couple minute window just for you to speak to God alone. And what I want to challenge you to do today is if you have never given your life to Jesus, this is your moment right now. This is your chance to just say a simple prayer to you. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in your death on the cross for my sins and that you rose from the dead. Would you forgive me and take over my life? Now, if you've done that this morning, then I'm just going to invite you right now to just enter into, and, it, and it'll be painful, but it's needed. Just a time of really self-inspection, self-reflection between you and the Lord. And just ask Him, what are the words that have been coming out of my mouth the last couple of weeks? What do they say about the state of my heart? And then together as a church, we just echo the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 141. To set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Do not let my heart be drawn to evil. Spend some moments with Him.